Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we've got a couple of interesting uh, Harvard Business Review tips to uh, help grow our business. Also talking with Christina Sikiotis, who's actually at a conference down in Melbourne at the moment on innovation. So we'll gather a few tips on innovation from her. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Stephen Markey from Markey Insurance. Good afternoon, Stephen. Afternoon, Julian. Oh, a bit quiet today. Um, how are you today? Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to turn the volume up a little bit. Okay, so uh, so far on our program, we've had discussions mainly on risks businesses face from external sources, such as fire and liabilities, cyber risk and, and so on. How can they insure themselves against them? But uh, what about risks and businesses that f- uh, face things from within their own operations? And, in fact, it's interesting. I understand that 50% of Australian businesses experiencing economic crime, employee fraud is a major academic. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in the area of employee fraud in Australia? Yeah, I sure can, Julian. That was a mouthful. It was. But, um... You wrote it all out for me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I do. I understand. Like fifty percent of businesses are experiencing that, which is not interesting. It's unfortunate, but um, this this subject of employee fraud can be a particularly touchy subject with businesses when we when discussed. And the usual response is, as you might imagine, is we don't need to insure against that, as we have good systems and long-standing employees. So you get that kind of response, and people want to move on. However, but the problem is. And, and the problem is that less than 10% of business buy the appropriate insurance cover to protect against fraud or mm. to help reimburse them against fraud, okay? And, and that all comes into reality when you think that the estimated annual cost of fraud in Australia is about $8.5 billion. Wow. Um, like, that's not all employee fraud, but that is that's fraud in general. A lot of it's employee fraud. So, so would you say that employee fraud is on the rise? Oh, it's definitely on the rise. Uh, unfortunately, even from our business experience, uh, even to a couple of years ago, we would rarely see a claim notification for an employee fraud, or when I say that, like it's, a, it's theft by employees. Mm. Um, and now there's, there's more people with this type of insurance in place, um, for a reason I'll talk about later, but we regularly get reports of incidents involving employee theft. Um, so that's just our experience. But, but what's particularly concerning for business, and, and particularly in our region, is the constantly changing in economic environment. And in our area, it's kind of dropped, um, together with the technological advancements and global expansions, means that businesses are now faced with an increased exposure to fraud and theft. So with the economic environment falling, um, everything opening up, we, we've got a lot, we're a lot more exposed. But wouldn't this technological advancement also assist in preventing fraud? Yeah, in, in some cases that can be true, and, and it is a really good point. Um, that reliance on internal controls, like with technology, is, is not sufficient um, protection, obviously, as fraud is on the rise. Mm. So probably the best way for me to quickly es- escalate people's recognition of this employee fraud or fidelity or crime, whatever you want to call it, um, is to give you some statistics and example real-life claims, and some mm-hmm. of them are fairly entertaining. So the, the key facts, and these are, these are real, um, as you said, close to 50% of Australian businesses experience economic crime in the last 12 months. 
Wow. That's half the businesses. Mm. The, and the average fraud um, is $3 million in Australia. Yeah. And 85% of the worst frauds were perpetrated by insiders on payroll. Mm. You can imagine people playing with the payroll. Mm. Um, and of this, it was 30% of, 30% of the perpetrators were employees and 55% of them were management. Wow. So, um, you know, the other issue is 60 odd percent of frauds. There's there's no recovery from the fraudster. It's just gone. Yeah. Um, and and another factor in fraud is that the average time to detect a major fraud is over 12 months, and, and others I've seen have been for three years. Well, they're they're staggering statistics. Uh, but would you consider the big? What would you consider would be the biggest motivator for a fraudster? Unfortunately, and quite simply, the biggest motivator for fraudsters within the average business is, is gambling habits and lifestyle. So the gambling is a real problem in this area. So, um, hmm. And people need to know, like, it, 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 it's usually an employee who has been with you for a very long time that conducts the fraud, or that's the fraudster. So, so where are the claims on fraud insurance coming from? Well, it's mainly like money in cash. So mm. you see EFT theft, this is a big one, falsifying invoices. An obvious one like theft of cash from tills. A nasty one like overpaying wages and siphoning money from, from bank accounts. And, um, and probably creating false employees. Yeah, it can be yeah. false service providers, for example. Yeah. Um, false employees, yeah, you could do that. But it's mainly false service providers or false services. So that's all the cash money-related one, but the other one that you can't forget about is like tangible property. There's a lot of theft of inventory, um, which can be anything from, um, there's a couple of examples, like lobsters, tomatoes, copper, steel, tyres, and of course, alcohol. Um, mm. Shops are a big exposure there, so people then on then usually on sell these goods to, to make their money. And I suppose paper clips you could add on to that too. <laughs> well, you could, anything. That's right. Anything they can sell to get some money from. I'm, sh- I'm sure there are some very entertaining fraud examples. You can tell us a few? Yeah, sure. They, um, today I was, I was going to give you three examples of all different types of fraud by employees. So um, the first one was, was theft of, of stock examples. So someone's knocking off a stock. So mm. This is just for an average size seafood wholesale business. And the background is a, a claim. So these people had bit of fraud insurance, okay. Uh, a claim was made for the loss of over six tonnes of lobsters, which yeah, fantastic around um, Easter time and Christmas time. Uh, following an investigation, it was discovered that three long-term trusted employees had devised an intricate plan to misappropriate the insured's lobster stock and sell it on for cash. Okay, mm. so um, the loss was discovered, this is the interesting part, the loss was discovered by the sales manager who was monitoring the stock levels over a period of time. So one of the other th- interesting things we'll talk about here is how they're discovered. But, mm. So that was discovered by the um, sales manager. But in, in the end, that, that, that claim came out at 280000 And of the 280000 30000 of it was um, investigation costs. So when you have a fraud, you don't actually just lose the money. You have to then pay investigation costs to, of course. to work yeah. it all out. So perpetrators got prosecuted, but the recovery was impossible as the proceeds had already been spent and gambled away, so mm. not so nice. Um, another one, like misappropriation of funds, 
and, and this is in a hospitality business, like in the pub industry. And um, took six years, six years for an employee while he was um, working for the in the hotel business. And his duties included general bookkeeping, managing payroll, payment of accounts, ordering stocks, and all those kinds of duties. He had mis- misappropriated over eight million dollars from various different companies that were in the group. Like, and and the, the theft in this case was actually detected by the group's bank, so they had um, they'd come across it. And in the end, um, this one was between eight and nine million dollar loss. And this 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 is another point. Watch the limits that you buy in fraud insurance. They only had a million dollars limit, but the loss was eight million, so they were seven million dollars out of pocket. Oh. So that hurts. Uh, and the uh, the other one I was going to um, to talk about was when people alter checks, for example. Like we had one here where in, over five years an internal accountant had misappropriated eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars by altering checks. Um, and the employee in question, he was a very close friend of the owner of the company, was a trusted friend and employee, but the employee facilitated the fraud by continuing a cycle of paying debt, debtors' accounts with funds from other debtors, so he's rolling the money around. Mm-hmm. And, and this continued on until uh, the scheme was uncovered by the company's new auditors. So your auditors are coming up with this one. So, so you've mentioned that often it's uncovered by auditors, but is this how the uh, fraudulent acts are usually discovered? Uh, they, they're, usually, the, the, they're usually discovered when a person might go on holidays yeah. or may have to go on extended leave for un, at an unexpected time uh, or by an auditor. And often when a new auditor comes online, like you've got stock takes and tip-offs as well that, that help um, discover these things. Um, and then, an entertaining one is that fraudsters should be careful with, and often there's collusion between a husband and wife or mm. two people um, when when these things happen, and it's very risky um, for the typical fraudster as if there's a relationship breakdown uh, or break up a divorce or whatever. One of the part, one of the fraudsters tends to come clean to the police, so uh, the other one gets topped in. So, so just quickly, how would you recommend businesses protect themselves from employee fraud? Um, well, up-to-date internal controls, things like dual signatories on checks and electronic transfers, like segregation of duties type stuff. There's security cameras, um, ensure employees take holidays, have the auditors make sure they do their job, conduct background checks. Um, and other interesting ones is be very savvy around employees that are in jobs that are like a fraud hotspot mm. that you think have, might have a gambling problem or um, may have a partner that's out of work so they're looking for... Extra money. money yeah. Another big one is really you can subscribe to facilities like whistleblower hotlines and um, that's where you can throw it out there so people can basically um, dob someone in but without any repercussions. So they're really handy services uh, out there. So Great. Well, thanks for... You buy crime and fraud insurance. It's not expensive. Okay. So it's absolutely the la- uh, one of the things that people should be Protect considering. You. Well, great. Thanks very much for your time again, Steve. And uh, I believe you're off on a well-earned working holiday. So we'll talk talk with someone else from your company in in a fortnight's time and then we'll get back to you when you return. Sure. Thanks very much for your time, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Steve Markey there with very interesting comments there on uh, fraud. You're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. 
It's 25 minutes past one. Time to pop over to Christina Sikiatis, who's travelling on a bus to the Melbourne airport. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you? I'm very well. I can hear the roar of the bus, but that's okay. <laughs> you're coming across I'm nice and clearly. You've just been to an, an innovation conference, I believe, and you're going to share a couple of interesting comments that you've heard from there. Yeah, I've just been to the um, Australian Pacific uh, Innovation Conference, uh, Creative, Creative Innovation Conference, and it was just fantastic. There were three days of wonderful speakers. One of the, the highlights for me was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ernesto Sorelli, who um, runs the Sorelli Institute. Interestingly enough, he's Italian, his wife is Australian, they live in California, they work in um, Singleton, and they actually do a lot of, sorry, Singapore, they actually do a lot of work up in the Hunter Valley area around mm. Singleton. Um, so we're hoping that he might actually come to Newcastle um, very shortly, yeah. So, but he has a, a philosophy that nobody actually innovates on their own, mm. and that in order, entrepreneurs actually need to be in a group of, of a few people because different people have different skills. And if you're the entrepreneur coming up with the idea, you can't possibly be a fantastic marketer. And if you're the marketer, you can't possibly be the fantastic accountant. So if you um, if you actually are into entrepreneurialism, he suggests that you need to start thinking about teams uh, and operating in teams with other people. So that was his main message um, through for the for the conference, which was. Um, and there was some other another highlight for me was a gentleman by the name of Scott Anthony. Uh, who also works in Singapore, but you'll like this, and we might talk about him more next week. Um, he actually has worked with Clay Christensen, who and has written books with him, the founder of the term disruptive innovation. Okay, good. Excellent. Yeah. So, so going back to the point of the team, I mean, that's uh, sort of the point that uh, that was raised in the e-myth um, where you had to wear all those hats and, and what he's probably suggesting is rather than learn all those hats yourself you involve other people who've got perhaps better skills. That's exactly what he's saying because these days, I mean there's quite a few, entrepreneurialism is almost the new black if you like mm. uh, and with all the redundancies and everything, I think we've spoken about this before, people are actually um, going into their own businesses and everything instead of looking for new jobs. So there is, there are quite a few entrepreneurs out there, and the best way to actually do what you want to do in success or be successful at it is to collaborate with other people. So there's that collaboration word again as well. Mm. And and I actually find that I'm I'm running a small business course at the moment with, for the uh, new enterprise incentive scheme with you know unemployed people going into their own businesses and just them a group of fifteen in the room sharing their, their ideas. You can see entrepreneurs bouncing their ideas off each other. Yeah, and isn't that a wonderful thing? Because that, And then we go back to the conversations we've had about design thinking, where the best ideas come from the layering of different ideas and coming back from different people's input with different skill sets. Mm. Well, you have a safe trip back to Newcastle. We'll have a chat with you again next week. Looking forward to it, Julian. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christine Sikiot is there on her way back from sounds very very interesting conference. We'll get some more of those tips Next week, well, we've got time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips, and this one I found very interesting because I'm sure we've all been in a position where we've in, sent an email by mistake. This is called Apologise Quickly If You Send an Embarrassing Email. Most people have made the mistake of hitting Reply All on a private email or sending an insensitive message to the wrong person. After the panic sets in, you need to own the mistake. 
approached the offended colleague quickly and apologised. I'm sorry I did it, and even more sorry that it hurt, showed disrespect for you. Seek forgiveness, I wrote without thinking, and if I could take it back I would. I can only ask you to forgive me. Avoid insincere language like mistakes were made or I'm sorry if you were offended. Apologise in person or by phone. You don't want to risk getting in it wrong again via another email. And, as awful as it feels having to make an apology, recognise that you may have done real damage. You might need to make additional steps to show that you actually care about the issue and are taking it seriously. Interesting book there written when a private message ends up in the wrong place by Karen Dillon. And I'm sure we've all been there. I know that uh, certainly I have. And this one here is an interesting one. Giving people options when pitching a new idea. People often prefer to use comparisons to evaluate a choice rather than judging one option in isolation. So you can use this to your advantage when trying to persuade someone to accept your idea or buy your product. For example, if you're presenting a business plan for a new product to your board, first review the products you decided not to pursue. Doing so gives your audience different options to consider while giving you a reputation as someone who supports open decision-making. This doesn't mean that you should invent um, lousy alternatives to make your idea appear more impressive. Instead, it's a way to guide your audience through your own decision-making process, what you've tested, why something worked or didn't work, while making more convincing case for your idea. Providing testimonials can also achieve the same effect. So a couple of interesting little comments there from the Harvard Business Review. And thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've had a look at uh, protecting yourself against business fraud, which uh, I think is becoming more and more serious. If you listen to those statistics, 50% of business is being affected. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll visit the tax world again with Tony Vidray, have a minute on innovation with Christina, and look at some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you, next week at the same time. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Zig Ziglar once said, if you help enough people get what they want, you'll get what you want.